Well, take your copy of God's Word and open it with me to the book of John. We're going to pick up where Pastor Joe left off last Sunday, and we're going to begin John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. There is an organization out there called the Edelman Group, and every year they publish something that's called the Edelman Barometer of Trust. Now, what is that? The Edelman Barometer of Trust is a survey involving thousands and thousands of people in which they are questioned and they are asked their level of trust in the different institutions of society. They've been doing this survey, this report, for 22 years. But this year, I think to no one's surprise, they reported that trust is at an all-time low. According to the Edelman Group, fewer people than ever trust government, fewer people than ever trust the media, They said that fewer people than ever trust our schools, trust academia, fewer people than ever trust business. In fact, they reported that fewer people than ever trust science, and guess what? They don't trust the church either. The Edelman Group said something this year that they had never said before, and I took a screenshot uh, from my computer because I wanted you to see this. Now, the fine print at the bottom, it says April 29th, 2022, but here is their summary of this year's report, distrust is the default. In other words, we have so little trust in anyone these days. This is where we begin. This is automatic. It hasn't always been this way, but it's where we are now. Distrust is the default. Well, brothers and sisters, even though we live in a day and a time in which no one trusts anyone anymore, I'm here to tell you that there is still someone we can trust. And his name is Jesus. In fact, do you realize this is the very reason for which John wrote this gospel and he even told us as much. He said in John 20 verse 31, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now notice that word, believe. It appears over 200 times in the New Testament, but almost 100 of those times is right here in the Gospel of John. This word that translates believe in the Greek, it's that word pistuo, but it really means to trust. The entire Gospel of John is all about why we can trust Jesus and why we should trust Jesus in every part of our lives. 
This morning, we're going to look at a story that is very familiar for most of us. It's the story of the first miracle that Jesus performed at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. At the end of this story, John uses a word uh, to describe this miracle. He calls it a sign. That word sign means something that points to something else, something deeper than itself. Now, this was a real, literal miracle. But this miracle, John said, was also a sign because it is meant to be a picture of what God wants to do in our lives. It is a picture of what Jesus will do in our lives if we trust him. And so we're going to look at this story. We're going to see three areas of our lives in which we can trust Jesus. First of all, trust him with the problems in your life. Trust him with the problems in your life. Look with me at verse 1. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. It tells us a lot about Jesus, that Jesus and his mother and the disciples were invited to a wedding. It tells us that Jesus was the kind of person who attended weddings, that he enjoyed the normal experiences of life. I heard a story about a little boy who went to church and he heard this story for the very first time. When he got home, his mom asked him, what did you learn at church today? And he said, well, I learned that if you're going to have a wedding, you'd better invite Jesus. That's pretty good advice, I would say, even today. But understand that in those days, a wedding was the social event of the year. And in many parts of the world today, that is still the case. Our missionary in the Middle East, who's working in a Middle Eastern context, she tells us that even today, their weddings over there do not last hours. They actually last days and that a big part of her ministry is attending weddings because that is how she forms the relationships by which she can share the gospel. But in those days, in the first century, they would begin with a ceremony in the synagogue then the wedding party would return home, usually at night. It was a candlelit procession. They would intentionally take the longest route home possible so that everyone could greet them and congratulate them along the way. When they finally got home, they didn't leave to go away for a honeymoon. The honeymoon actually came to them. And so they would have music and singing and wine and dancing and food. Uh, they even wore crowns. They were treated like royalty. This was to be the greatest event of their lives, and for most of them it was. Most of them would just plod through the rest of their lives and never experience anything like this. This is why when we come to verse 3, We've got a problem. Verse 3 says, And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now, don't skip over those verses at the beginning of verse 3. When they ran out of wine, this was not 
a small problem. This was a big problem. In fact, this would have been considered a catastrophe because in the first century, hospitality was a fundamental value. It was expected that the bride and the groom would serve wine. In fact, in those days, if the wedding feast ran out of wine, the coordinator of that wedding could literally be sued for, get this, breach of hospitality. Now, you might hear this and think, well, that's a little extreme. Well, let me just ask you this. How many of you got married and at your wedding, there was a wedding cake? Raise your hands. How many of you got married and had a wedding cake? Okay, most of you who are married had a wedding cake. Now, just imagine this. Imagine that there is a wedding and someone must inform the bride that there was a big mistake and the baker got his dates mixed up he thought that the wedding would be the following weekend and therefore there would be no wedding cake during the reception how many of you think the bride would be just a little bit mad anybody there's a word that comes to mind the word Bridezilla. <laughs> Don't know if you've heard that particular term, but a word that describes the bride when she gets really, really angry because things aren't going the way they're supposed to go. Well, if you can imagine that, this was kind of a similar situation in John chapter 2. And notice again in verse 3 the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. I'll be honest, I'm not very good at reading between the lines. I'm not one of those persons who's really good at picking up hints, if you know what I mean. I'm one of those uh, persons who, if you have something to say to me, you just come out and you say it, and you say it bluntly if you want me to understand. Well, even I can read verse 3 and read between the lines. Even I can understand that when Mary said to Jesus, they have no wine, this was not a casual observation. She wasn't saying, oh, they have no wine. This was Mary saying to Jesus, do something about this. And let's give Mary credit for one thing. What everybody ought to do in this situation, she didn't worry, she didn't panic, she went to Jesus. He was not her last resort. He was her first choice. Now, I'm going to tell you something, and I already know this is unbelievably simple. This is very basic, but when there is a problem, what is the first thing we should do? Tell it to Jesus. At some point, we're all going to be there. At some point, there will be a problem that you can't solve. There will be a crisis that you cannot handle. At some point in life, you will be in a hole that you cannot climb out of. And when that happens, what will you do? Tell it to Jesus. You know, some of you, honestly, you have this habit where uh, you will come to Christ after you have tried everything else and everyone else Yes, you pray when all else fails. You do it God's way, 
after finding out once again that your way just doesn't work. Well, Jesus doesn't want to be your last option. He wants to be your first response every single time. And and this is true not just when it comes to the big things in life. This is true when it comes to everything in life. We all understand that uh, running out of wine was not really a matter of life and death, but it was a real problem. And a lot of times there are problems that we face in life, and they're not life and death problems, but that doesn't mean they don't matter, and that doesn't mean that God doesn't care. For example, losing your keys is not as big of a problem as losing your job. Losing your job is not as big as losing your health. But they are all problems. And every legitimate problem in your life, whether it's big or whether it's small, they matter to God. God cares about things like broken marriages and cancer and bankruptcy. He also cares about flat tires and missing pets and toothaches. And God wants you to trust Him with all of the above, with every problem you have. There's no problem that's too big for Him, but there's also no problem that's too small for Him. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Cast all your cares on Him, for He cares for you. I think about what Jesus said in Matthew 6. He said, Your Father in heaven knows what you need before you ask Him. And yet we are told to ask anyway. Because when you do that, when you bring those needs and cast those burdens upon the Lord, you are demonstrating your dependence upon Him. You are showing Him that you trust Him. And sure, God could have given us a life without problems. He could have given us a sun without clouds. He could give us roses without thorns. But you know what? I have a feeling if God did that, we would not turn to Him for anything. And not always, but you know, sometimes in life, God will allow us to experience certain problems in order to teach us to trust Him because He is trustworthy. And so the first lesson that we see in this is that you can trust Him with the problems in your life, but then also trust Him with authority over your life. Trust Him with authority over your life. Look at verse 4. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, man, I don't recommend you try this at home. Uh, For example, if you're watching the big game and your wife asks you to take out the trash, uh, you probably should not say, Woman, what does this have to do with me? The game is not yet over. (laughs) Now, on the surface, if you don't know any better what Jesus is saying, it may sound kind of harsh, but it really wasn't. First of all, this word for woman, it really was a title of respect. It's like Jesus was referring to his mother by saying, ma'am. Second of all, Jesus was not complaining about her request. He was not complaining about her request. Jesus was actually correcting her misunderstanding. It's very interesting that Jesus has not yet performed a miracle, and yet here is Mary in John chapter 2. Even though he hasn't yet done it, she knows he absolutely can do it. 
And she knows that he can perform a miracle in this situation because she knows that he was virgin born. She watched him grow up. She knows that he's 30 years old and he has never committed a single sin. She knows that he was just baptized, that he recently called his disciples. She knows that his ministry is just now beginning. And so in her mind, she thinks, well, it's time. She wants Jesus to put on some kind of public display so that everybody would know about Jesus what she knew about Jesus. That was her plan, but it was not God's plan. And that is why Jesus said to her, my hour has not yet come. And so look at how Mary responds. She doesn't know exactly what Jesus is going to do, but she knows that whatever he does will be right. Verse 5 says, his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now we can't be certain, but it's possible that Mary played some kind of important role in all of this. Maybe she was an assistant. Maybe she was like a a wedding coordinator, but she is giving orders to the servants. We see the servants actually following her orders, and she gives them the best advice I think that anybody could ever give in all of life. Whatever Jesus tells you, do it. Think about all the grief we could avoid in life if we would just Listen to this advice. If we would decide at the very beginning, okay, God, whatever your word says, I'll do it no matter what, whether I like it or not, even when it doesn't make sense. If we would do that, think of all the marriages that would be transformed, how our perspective might be different and our finances would change and we'd have more peace and more joy in our lives. Jesus said in John 13, if you know these things and do them, happy are you. Well, Jesus is going to give these servants two instructions, and neither one of them made any sense to them at the time. Look at verse 6. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons of a piece. Now we can begin to understand why John referred to this as a sign. He says that there were six water pots made of stone, but then he adds that these water pots were specifically for Jewish purification. We understand that in those days they placed great emphasis on being ceremonially clean. For example, when someone came home, this was the water that you used to clean their feet. And before every meal, and even during the meal, this was the water that you used to wash their hands. But this was not about being physically clean. It was about being ceremonially clean. It's not about sanitation. It's about purification. Because in their minds, this was how a man or woman could draw close to God. By performing all of these different religious rituals. And do you notice that their water pots were empty? You see what Jesus is doing here? 
He's showing them, he's showing us the emptiness of religion apart from Christ. He's showing them the inability of their religious rituals to save them. And do you also notice how many water pots there were? Notice there were six. And we see many times in Scripture how six, the number six, represents man because man was created on the sixth day. These water pots are a picture of our spiritual condition apart from Christ. These water pots remind us that apart from Him, we are empty and we need to be filled. And so what does He tell them to do? Verse 7, Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. I'm sure to, the, to these servants that sounded ridiculous. I mean, how does filling the water pots with water solve their problem? They don't need water. They need wine. They can't understand what Jesus is telling them to do, and yet they did it. The end of verse 7 says that they filled them to the brim. I believe Jesus made sure they filled those water pots all the way to the brim so that they would know without any doubt that only water was in those pots because that is all they put in there, and no one could come along and say that Jesus had added something else to them. Well, then Jesus gave them a second Instruction, verse 8, and he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And here's the amazing part, and they took it. When I read this story, there's so many things I wish I knew. For example, I wonder if those servants were nervous. Think about what Jesus just told them to do. He told them to go and draw water out of those same old water pots that they used to wash their hands and their feet and then take that water and serve it to the master. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a good way to get fired. But they go over there to those water pots and they draw out some water and then they went over to the, the master of the ceremonies and they poured it out and they did exactly what Jesus told them to do and God did what only God can do. And to think... God didn't just meet their need. He gave them over and above their need 150 more or less gallons of wine. They had wine to spare. And all of this time, I want you to notice, Jesus is using people, using people. The servants drew the water. The servants fill the water pots. The servants serve the water to the chief. The servants did all of this work that God told them to do, but then God supplied the power. And, and likewise, there is work that God has given us to do. And listen, God will not do it for us. 
He tells us to take the waters of his word and to go out and fill all of those empty water pots that are around us. Empty people with empty hearts and empty lives and fill them with the preaching and the teaching of God's word. Fill them up with the gospel and trust God to do the rest. And by the way, it's very significant that Jesus did not turn the water into wine until they obeyed. You see, sometimes we have a problem. Many times we think that obedience follows blessings, but that's not so. Sometimes someone will say, okay, God, if you bless me, if you give me what I want, I'll obey you. But listen, obedience doesn't follow blessings. Blessings follow obedience. Obedience comes first. Sometimes someone will come along and they'll say, okay, God, when I get all of my bills paid and I get out of debt and when I get some savings set aside, then I'll give faithfully to God's work. And then someone else comes along and says, well, when I get my act together and when I fix all of my problems, then I'll go to church. And then someone else comes along and says, well, when my husband starts to do what he's supposed to do, or when my wife begins to do what she's supposed to do, then I'll start doing what I'm supposed to do. You know what happens? That first person never gives, and then that second person never steps foot in a church, and that third person, their marriage never gets fixed. I'll say it again. Obedience doesn't follow blessings Blessings follow obedience. Jesus commanded them. He told them what to do. Placing themselves under his authority, they obeyed, and God supplied the power. John's showing us that we can trust Jesus with the problems in our lives. We can trust him with authority over our lives. And one more lesson here, trust him with the results of your life. Trust him with the results of your life. Look at verse 9. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. Notice the master did not know what had happened. The groom did not know what had happened. Who knew? Jesus and those who were close to him. They knew. It's amazing what you can learn if you're willing to be a servant. And this obedience uh, of these servants, it not only blessed them, but it blessed all of the people around them as well. The blessings of obedience have a way of just overflowing and, uh, to all of those people who are around you. Look at verse 10. And he said to them, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. Now, this master of the feast, he made a very astute observation. He noticed that this wedding was different from any other wedding that he had ever attended. In every other wedding, he said, the best wine is served first, and then the cheap stuff is served later. But this time, when he tasted the wine that Jesus had made, he said, you served the best wine last. 
Now, there is a principle here. God always saves the best for last. God always saves the best for last. When the, with the world, however, what it has to offer you, its best always comes first. For example, the pleasures of sin come first, then the consequences of sin come later. With the world, it is always right now as good as it will ever get. But with the world, eventually the wine runs out. And eventually the enjoyments of life wane. And eventually the escapades lose their thrill. And eventually Disney World gets old. But with God, but with God, it's the other way around. With God, it only gets better. And with God, the blessings of life get larger and life gets better. And then one day when you finally reach the finish line, even then you know you haven't seen anything yet because eye has not seen, nor has ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man, Paul said, what God has prepared for those who love him. Even then you know the best is yet to come. Look at verse 11. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Again, John refers to this as a sign. It is a picture of what Jesus wants to do in your life. And think about this. If Jesus can take ordinary water and change the molecular structure so that it becomes wine, if Jesus can do that, just imagine what he can do with you. The same Jesus who turned water into wine is able to transform your life today. And what was the result the end result of this miracle, the Bible says the result was his disciples believed him. There's that word again. They believed him. They learned that we can trust him. And we really can. We can trust him with our lives. We can trust him with our future. We can trust him with all of our plans. We can trust him with our homes. We can trust him with our children. We can trust him with our finances. We can trust him with our health. We can trust him when we understand, and we can trust him when we don't understand. And let me just close by saying this. If you're here this morning and you have never trusted in him as Savior and Lord of your life, guess what? You can trust him for your salvation. You can trust him for eternal life because he is trustworthy. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. And we thank you, God, that you can be trusted. We confess that too many times in our lives, we have failed to trust you as we should. We ask you to forgive us for that. And God, if there's an area of our lives right now where we are not trusting you as we should, would you please show us 
And would you please give us the grace, as the old song says, oh, for grace to trust you more. I pray for those who are here today and they are in a situation, maybe they are in a crisis and they need to trust you. Lord, I pray that you would give them the grace to do that. And God, we know that whatever trial we face today, tomorrow there will be another one. And tomorrow we'll need grace to trust you for that one as well. So would you help us day by day to trust you no matter what our circumstances are, no matter what we may be going through. And God, I pray for those who are here who perhaps have never placed their trust in Jesus to be Savior and Lord of their lives. He is the one who came from heaven to earth and lived a perfect life and died for us, took our place, and rose again and ascended And he did all of that so that whosoever shall call upon his name shall be saved. So God, I pray for that one who has yet to trust in Christ that this would be their day of salvation. That in this moment they would cry out to you and say, save me now. I'm not trusting in myself anymore. I'm not trusting in my good works anymore. I'm not trusting in religious rituals anymore. I'm placing my trust in Christ and in Christ alone to save me. And Father, have your way in these next moments. And we pray all this in Jesus' name.